What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have two guests this morning. The first is Jocelyn Simonson. Jocelyn is a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and the leading national authority on community bail funds. Her work has been cited by the Supreme Court and discussed in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The Associated Press. And she has written for The New York Times, The Nation, The Washington Post, and others. Her book that we are discussing today is Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. Also joining us today is Tracy McCarter. Tracy is a mom to four amazing humans, a grandmother to two, a nurse, a daughter, a friend, and a lifetime member of Girl Scouts USA. She recently completed her master's degree in nursing at Columbia University while simultaneously fighting for her freedom. She describes herself as a badass advocate who is no one's victim. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. I'm excited about this conversation. Um, Jocelyn, I'll start with you. The book explains in detail for us several types of what you call radical acts of justice as organizers try to significantly curtail the impacts of the criminal legal system on marginalized communities. Before we walk through some of those, I want to start with the issue of language, the definition of words attached to the criminal legal system. Can you talk about the ways in which the utilization of language can help or hinder efforts to transform the criminal legal system, for instance, public safety? We have the last couple of years seen the emergence of a narrative that we need to redefine what public safety is, what it means, and what actually keeps us safe. Yes, absolutely. And thanks again for having me. My book is called Radical Acts of Justice, uh, deliberately, because that word justice is usually one that is taken over by police and prosecutors and the courts who get to define for us what it is. And then we come to take that for granted. So for example, when something bad happens and you hear someone say, are we seeking justice in this case? A lot of people will assume that means they're asking for a prosecution, for someone to be put in a cage or sent to prison for some kind of a punishment. Similarly, with the idea of public safety, If a politician says they believe in public safety, for many people, we take it for granted that that means that they believe in more and better policing, in prosecution, and things like that. And that can be hard because it makes the system that we have seem inevitable. If I believe in safety and justice, which I do, just a different meaning of it, but if I believe in safety and justice, then the only place that it seems like I can go to are police and prosecutions. On the other hand, it presents an opportunity because when people get together and they start to live out other understandings of safety and justice, whether it's by taking care of each other outside of the criminal court system and keeping each other safe and showing that the state's understanding of safety isn't the only way, or what I talk about in the book is when people actually go into criminal courtrooms and they support other people, and they sit in the audience of those courtrooms and show that they are people and they have a different idea of justice than than the one that the system has. And so it can be really powerful to reclaim the language that the system uses to justify itself. And when you start to reclaim that language, it actually kind of pulls the rug out from under the system's justification for itself, which is why the subtitle of the book 
is how ordinary people are dismantling mass incarceration. Because one idea behind it is that small acts of helping individual people, when done collectively, can actually both materially help somebody and also engage in a larger ideological battle. Two follow-up questions to that. Um, Talk a little bit about the dangers of justice only being defined through punishment and incarceration. What obstacles does that produce in terms of actually healing communities from harm or producing public safety? Yeah, I love that question because we often don't think about justice as having obstacles or giving trouble as much as asking whether we have it or we don't. You know, has someone been prosecuted or prosecuted? Or has there not been justice in this case? But the danger of giving a label of justice to putting someone in handcuffs before a judge and then sending them, sending them into a cage because we've decided that they've done something wrong means that we enact violence on somebody, on that individual. But also, just as importantly, we don't look elsewhere for ways to keep each other safe and seek out justice. And we can hopefully talk to Tracy about this um, as well, but the experience of being prosecuted isn't one that tends to lead to healing for anybody. And I think um, even experts who believe in more prosecution and in prison would tend to agree with that. Instead, there are lots of people who are seeking out other forms of justice, whether it's restorative justice or transformative justice, which has more of a communal sense of what justice can mean. And when we start to locate that word, you know, justice, and think about it communally as trying to get in place the kinds of conditions and supports that allow people to harm people less than they otherwise would, and when harm occurs, to really seek out the kind of accountability that can lead to healing, those are the kinds of experiments and situations that people are engaging in every day, but that we rarely label as justice. Instead, we say, go to the Hall of Justice, go to the Justice Center. Those things, if you have a Hall of Justice in your town or city or state, it's probably a criminal courtroom or a jail. But imagine if we had a place that we called a Hall of Justice, and instead of there being handcuffs and cages, there, was ac- there were actually you know, youth-led programming in which people work together to try to hurt each other less. There's also, Jocelyn, this false narrative, and we're really seeing it everywhere right now in this current political climate, which we're going to talk about more a little bit later, too, that for all survivors of harm, that justice only means long prison sentences. Two-part question here. One, what do we know about what many survivors of harm actually want? And two, what do we know about long prison sentences and their impact or not on long-term community safety? Sure. Well, to the first question, we know that there's no one thing that people who have experienced harm want. Everybody's different. Everybody's their own person. We also know for sure that it is not true that most people who have experienced harm want, as a first initial matter, somebody to be punished and put in prison. It's not true. And in fact, you know, qualitative studies and surveys have found that it's rarely the first thing that people want. But if somebody is only given the option of that or nothing else, then the question looks different. And so the challenge for us, you know, uh, as a community, as a society, is to give love to people who have been harmed and open up the possibilities of how we can work toward healing them.
The other question is, what do we know uh, about long-term prison sentences and their impact or not on long-term community safety? Yes. Okay. We also know for certain that long-term prison sentences do not keep us safer. We can think about this in several different ways. One thing we can think about is what is the impact on an, on an individual when we send them to prison for a long time? When somebody experiences that world of being subject to the violence of the state, of being held in a cage, and then we send them back home, they are not going to be better off than they otherwise would have been, and they are not going to be less likely to harm somebody in the future because of the way that the state has treated them. We can also think about it communally. One way to think about it is to simply look at the incredible explosion in mass incarceration that we experienced over the last 60 years and ask from place to place whether there's any correlation between prison sentences or incarceration rates and so-called public safety. Even if we define it in the traditional ways that police and prosecutors do about number of arrests or something like that. Or we could even think about it today, where if you look from city to city, there is absolutely no correlation between the local prosecutor's tough-on-crime stance and the arrest rates or so-called crime rates. That's right. One more thread here, and then we'll move on. And it's I want to talk about because it's actually something I haven't thought about before um, that fascinated me. One of the phrases you discuss in the book is this idea of prosecutors representing the people, we the people. Um, but through the efforts of organizations and organizers who engage in efforts to transform the criminal legal system by inserting themselves into it, how are they challenging the definition of who the people actually are? The term the people has always driven me bananas. I was a public defender in the Bronx for five years. And during that time, you know, I'm in a state, New York, it's true of California, Illinois, a number of them, where the prosecutors are literally called the people. And anyone who has ever watched Law and Order are familiar with the opening lines where we're told that the people are represented by prosecutors and the police. So if you think of the state caption, the people of the state of New York versus Jocelyn Simonson, the idea is that all the people are against one person. And in fact, the prosecutor will walk into the courtroom and they will literally be called the people. So the judge will say, how are you this morning, people? Or has anyone seen the people or the people in the hallway? And it's kind of absurd, but at the same time, everyone starts to adopt that language. So even you'll hear someone in the audience say, can you ask the people a question? And by the people, again, they mean the assigned district attorney. And of course, we know in the courtroom that they're not literally the people. But the idea behind that language is that they represent the people, the collective, and that somehow the person on the other side of the V is on their own. They're by themselves. Maybe they have a lawyer, but it's an individual against everyone. And what can be so powerful is when groups come and they reclaim that language. Sometimes they reclaim that language literally. So they will say, we are the people. We are a court watching group. We are going to sit here in this courtroom. And then we are going to issue a report called Not in Our Name, in which we write out what we saw the prosecutors do in our name. And we say that we are seeking people's justice. And here is our definition of justice. So reclaiming that language of the people can be incredibly powerful in the context of when, what, when you think about it, is a pretty absurd claim that prosecutors have to be the people. 
surely they represent some people, right? Some people probably agree with a prosecution that's happening. But the idea that it is all people against one individual person is part of what helps the system perpetuate itself. It helps it seem like it's doing justice without requiring us to stop and think about whether it actually is. And so when a group comes together and they support an individual person, they are already putting the people on the other side of that V. So it's the people of the state of New York, meaning one assistant district attorney, versus another group of people who are supporting the person who's being prosecuted or has been accused of a crime. That's incredibly powerful. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation today with Jocelyn Simonson about her book, Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. Also joining us is Tracy McCarter. And Tracy, we're going to bring you into the conversation um, here because I want to start walking through some of these radical acts of justice. Um, So let's start with participatory defense. What is that? I was introduced to the idea of participatory defense after I was arrested for defending my life against um, my abuser, my uh, husband at the time, and taken to Rikers, which is one of the most notorious jails in the United States, located here in New York City. Um, I was, I, it was a week where I got some bizarre letters in the mail from people that I had no idea knew I existed. Turns out one of the these court watchers that Jocelyn has talked about was in my courtroom, in the courtroom that I was arraigned in on um, the night that I was taken to be read my charges. Uh, and this person saw what happened and they thought they didn't want this to happen in their name. They wanted to help me and wrote a letter to me, wrote to another court watcher, uh, Rachel Foran, who then wrote me a letter and I got this letter at Rikers. And that's how I came to know about um, an organization called Survived and Punished, um, a division of which operates here in New York. And a group of people who were strangers to me got together and decided that they were going to help me understand what was happening to me. And they were going to help my family and me navigate uh, trying to get my charges dropped. And my understanding from reading your story in Jocelyn's book is that at first you were wary of taking this help. Can you talk about moving um, from the place of being wary to actually engaging the help of these women? Yeah, I mean, I was in a place where I couldn't understand what was happening to me. I had experienced this great trauma the night that I was attacked and ended up having to defend my life. And subsequently my husband died. I wasn't given any resources to process that. And all of a sudden I was supposed to figure out how to move through Rikers. It's a whole different society. Um, And so when I got those letters, I hadn't really started processing anything and I initially ignored them. I thought, to be quite frank, I worried that they were white savior types. And I thought, I'm going to go to court and they're going to understand, meaning like the, the, the prosecutor is going to understand that I was defending my life and 
I'm going to go home. So I don't need these strange people's help. Um, and they were saying that originally that the reason I was being prosecuted for this was because this was a fight about money. And I knew I, I did, this wasn't true. And I thought, okay, they're going to investigate my finances. They're going to see that I don't owe any money, you know, that I was supporting myself. This wasn't about money. And instead, the very next time I went for a court hearing, the prosecutor had changed the story to now I was a jealous person. And this was about a jealous act that I committed. And my lawyer at the time pointed out that there was an actual video of me being attacked that we had provided to, to the prosecutor so they could understand the, the domestic violence that I was actually experiencing. And the ADA, Sarah Sullivan, uh, says in reaction to this video that it, it appeared that I could have been choked um, on this video, but it would have been for a short period of time. And I, I, I words can't describe how I felt. It was like I was punched in my gut because I thought, so you know I am a victim and you don't care. You, it doesn't fit your narrative, therefore, and I, I remember after the hearing going back to my cell and finding those letters because I thought, I need somebody's help because I certainly don't understand what's happening here. And what was happening to you, Tracy, you know, happens every day um, in courtrooms across this country to women. Um, and so I want, Jocelyn, I want to bring you into the conversation. Can you define for us criminalized survivor and um, how does the criminalization of survivors impact Black women entangled in the criminal legal system specifically? Yeah. So the concept of a criminalized survivor would be somebody who has experienced harm but who is nevertheless prosecuted and brought into the criminal system and charged with being themselves a so-called criminal or being a perpetrator of harm in some way. And this can happen to people of all genders and gender identities, but it most often happens, or it especially happens to women and trans people, non-binary, other queer identities, people who are less likely to receive help when they're actually harmed, or at least official help from the state system, from the police, and from prosecutors. And more likely, once things come to a head, whether something actually happens or doesn't, to then be prosecuted for what they've experienced. And it impacts Black women and non-binary and trans people especially, as well as other women of color and other marginalized identities. For example, poor white women are also often criminalized survivors. And what something like a collective defense campaign or participatory defense campaign does in part is both work with an individual person on their case, and that's something I'm sure Tracy can tell us more about, and also connect that one collective campaign to the broader issue of the criminalization of survivors, and then from there to the broader issue of criminalization more broadly. Because what does it tell us when we take people who are experiencing harm, 
often repeated harm. And instead of helping them, some of the most marginalized people with the most marginalized identities, we're bringing the power of policing and prosecutor against them to harm them in a way that fits with our narrative that, again, that's how justice must come. It must come through criminal courtrooms. Well, if we notice how this one subset of people is being oppressed in this way, it can help us realize that we have this system that may not be bringing justice for anybody. Yeah, Tracy, I wanna, I wanna bring you back into the conversation and talk about the importance of self-determination through the participatory defense uh, process and how you experienced that as you moved through your case. One of the first things that happened when I talked to Rachel uh, was that she assured me that nothing about my um, representation here would happen without me being centered, without me being able to say what it is I wanted and what it is I didn't want, um, that they would not, they don't take the place of my legal representation and that they would be very careful to make sure to try to work with my legal representation. Um, and I will say, lawyers do not <laughs> tend to like participatory defense. And I get it. It creates this sort of, um, what's the word? It creates a sort of like light on a system that generally happens in the dark. Um, and so all of a sudden you have people that are putting your, your needs and your care at the center. And as much as lawyers try to do that or think that they do that, they don't. They center the court's rules and the court's language, uh, the court's decorum. It's always from that lens that you're treated as a defendant. As soon as you walk into a courtroom and you are now on the other side of that V. And so it's powerful being able to have some control to have people who are listening to you, who are helping you to understand and helping you navigate and, and, and translate to your lawyers and to the courts, you know, who you are and what you stand for. Um, I, I often say one of the first things that you lose as soon as you're arrested is your voice. And my participatory defense team, the Stand With Tracy team, did and do an amazing job at centering me so that even at times where I would say, guys, I can't handle this. I'm stepping out. I need you to do this decision because I can't. They said, okay, we can do that too. And you step back in as soon as you're ready or on this next decision. So I was also able to not participate when I couldn't because a lot of times you just don't have the capacity. You're so overwhelmed. Tracy, you said earlier that, you know, at first you were so sure that once the courts, you know, saw the truth or learned the actual facts of the case that this would be over, but but they didn't and it, and it wasn't. Can you talk about the ways in which your experience um, shifted not just your life, but also the way in which you see America and your place in it as a Black woman? You know, that's one of the things that I have said over and over is the most harmful. Um, I spent my life being, and I hate the term, but a, a good black, right? I 
did the right things. I, I, I excelled in school. I had my babies early, but I was a good mother. I was never in trouble. Um, and so I thought the court, oh, I, I knew that the court makes mistakes. I know that the court uh, gets innocent people, you know, convicted. But I thought these are anomalies or these are in fact mistakes. And what I came to see was that, no, it actually was the system functioning exactly as it was intended to function. I've given the talk to my sons primarily, right, as a a black mother thinking there are things you have to, to look out for when it comes to policing and being respectful and, you know, being careful because people aren't going to see you, um, you know, as yourself. They're going to see you as a black man first. What I never thought was that I would have to warn myself. I was extremely naive about the state of policing when it comes to black women and uh, women in, uh, you know, Latina women or in America. Um, And so one of the worst things for me, and I I hate to even admit this, is that they finally convinced me after 40, now I'm 48 years old, I am not equal. And I'm ashamed to say that. I no longer feel equal to my peers. And I, I'm, I don't know how to gain that power back. I don't know if I can do that here in America, but this is where my grandbabies are. So I can't go anywhere. I no longer believe myself to be an equal citizen. And I work on that every week in therapy because I used to be, and now I I don't feel like I am. Thank you for sharing that. Um... Not not my not my place really, but I'm gonna say it anyway. We know America doesn't see us as equal, but black woman to black woman, I just want to say to you, you are whole and complete, and equal and worthy and valued and valuable. And I will also just say, from you know moving through my trauma, what I've found, uh, the healing justice for me is in the work. You know, it's in the organizing. Um, sending you so much care. And so sorry that this happened to you. One of my favorite sayings, and I posted it as my Twitter pin because it it really resonates with me, is that in them trying to build me a prison cage to put me away for life, that's the power they actually unleashed was to give me a pulpit. I know my power and I'm reclaiming my place. And that was their miscalculation. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Jocelyn Simonson about her book, Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. We are also joined today by Tracy McCarter, who... um, who was arrested uh, for defending her life and through a process of participatory defense was ultimately freed. Um, I want to move on now um, to talk about bail funds, uh, particularly given 
what we are watching happening in Atlanta. Jocelyn, I want to start with you with some brass tacks definition about pretrial detention and money bail. What is it and what is the faulty premise upon which the state says it helps protect people from so-called violent offenders? Yeah. So money bail or money bond is a concept that a lot of people in the U.S. are familiar with colloquially, which is that when someone is arrested, often a judge will list an amount of money that they have to pay in order to be released and freed before their case is finished. So this is a moment where legally you're presumed innocent. Nobody has proven that you're guilty. You haven't pled guilty, which is how many cases end. And instead, you are often either trying trying to fight your case, trying to get it dismissed, or trying to work out some kind of plea bargain. But what happens when a judge sets money bail beyond what someone can afford, they end up sitting in a cage in jail while their case is pending. And this means that they're much more likely to plead guilty in order to go home. They're much less likely to be able to work with their attorneys on their case. They're estranged from their family. And maybe more importantly, they're experiencing the day-to-day trauma and violence of being incarcerated all before being formally found guilty or punished for anything. And at any one time in the U.S., there's more than 400,000 people sitting in local jails, pre-trial, waiting for their cases. And most of them are there simply because they're poor, because bail has been set beyond what they can afford. If they were free, they would be able to go to their jobs, be with their families, and fight their case from the outside. But instead, they're essentially criminalized because of their poverty. We know that prolonged um, time behind a cage impacts the individual, but it also has a reverberating impact on the community. Can you talk uh, a little bit about that? Um, What is the cost to communities to have so many of our folks from our neighborhoods sitting inside of jails waiting on trial? Mm -hmm. This is one of the most absurd, and I mean absurdly evil, things about money bail, which is that when a judge sets money bail or when a prosecutor asks for it, which is usually how it comes to be, they say that they're doing it in order to protect the community. So they say, this amount of money is necessary to protect the community. And the idea, I guess, is that if somebody's sitting in a cage because they can't pay their bail, then they're less likely to harm somebody on the outside. But what the idea doesn't consider is the actual community, the neighborhood that the person comes from, the person's family who may be missing their parent or their child while that person is incarcerated. They may uh, be missing work or even losing their job. They may be losing their housing. If they have children, their custody of their children is certainly going to be in peril. And just think more broadly, think about the fabrics of our communities that we weave every day to pull somebody out of that community actually harms our community in ways that are less Tangible can't be measured with so-called crime statistics, but that are felt materially and deeply by the neighbors, loved ones, coworkers, and co-students of people who are held pretrial. I just want to jump in and remind everybody too, Jocelyn, that a lot of times these aren't even violent acts that people are accused of. And so the idea that people are safer because someone is locked up ignores that fact as well. And I'm not saying that 
money bail is okay in those cases either, but I do want to point that out. I think that's a critical point to make, Tracy, you know, despite what the mainstream media tells us um, that, you know, jails and prisons are full of all of these horrifically violent people that we should all be terrified having on our streets. The reality is the majority of people sitting in jails and prisons are either dealing with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and or poverty. Right. They're they're in jail. And I believe, Jocelyn, you just said this. They're in jail because they're poor. Tracy, I was actually just about to bring you back in the conversation because I wondered if you could talk about how long you sat in Rikers and what what the journey part, the bail part of your journey uh, consisted of. How many times were you denied? What was the logic and reasoning? What happened? So the night that I was um, arraigned, I was remanded because the prosecutor stated that I had worked once as a travel nurse uh, and I had family in other states. The, the fact is I came to New York City as a travel nurse, but I never left. I was living in New York City from 2014 until uh, when I was arrested in 2020. I was in the process of buying an apartment in Queens. I was getting my master's at Columbia University. Uh, I was working full time at the premier hospital in the city. And I ended up coming back to court. I believe it was around seven or eight times over the course of two years asking for bail. Um, Every one of those times I was denied. I remember one of those times I was still at Rikers and ADA Sarah Sullivan came to, to the hearing and she cited a Facebook post in which I had ranted that someone had stolen my bike tire and that I was fed up and ready to leave New York City. She used that as evidence that I was a flight risk. I thought that is the most absurd thing I had ever heard, yet the judge denied bail. Because of COVID, I sat at Rikers for seven months without being uh, what they call like indicted for my crime. I was arraigned, which means they had enough to say that I did the thing, but it wasn't a formal indictment. Uh, Because Governor Cuomo closed the courts in New York City, I uh, was not actually indicted until September of 2020. Around that time, Victoria Law was a journalist who had written about my case uh, in The Gothamist, and the story was picked up by the Wall Street Journal. In it, it, I think it really embarrassed the DA's office. And that is the only reason that they, at that point, um, agreed to let me out on electronic monitoring. And I, that electronic monitoring is not a suitable uh, alternative to just letting people out of jails. That I just want to say that. It, was, it just increases the harm and extends the harm by turning the, my, my home into my prison. I wasn't even allowed to have time out to walk my dog. I was considered such a risk. Uh, and it took me almost two years on electronic monitoring before we could convince the court that I deserved bail. The only reason I got bail was because I needed the electronic monitor off so that I can have a surgery. The day that I went to court, um, I was in Judge Kiesel's court and I asked for bail and we knew that she was going to agree to it. I had four members of the community 
who had stepped up to agree to be my guarantors for bail. And then it came the time where I had to pay 10%, which was $20,000 because she had agreed to set bail at $200,000. She asked my lawyers who was going to pay the 20%. And she made sure to point out that that money had better not come from a bail fund because she was not going to accept it. We were prepared for that. And so I had $20,000 of my own money that I put up for bail. She immediately, Judge Kiesel, immediately turned to her court uh, attorney and she said, can I do that? She actually did not seem to want to take the money from me. I think she wanted it to come from the four people who were standing up to be my guarantors. Now, the courts are really clear when they say, The reason they don't like bail funds is because the people have no, the people who, meaning me, the people who are arrested, they don't have skin in the game and they might not show up to court because they haven't paid the money. It's not, they have nothing to lose. But here I was, all the skin was mine and she still didn't want the money. It was clear to me that it was more about forcing me to stay in a cage than it was about making sure I showed up to court. Because at that point, I had showed up to court every 60 days for almost three years. And actually, Jocelyn, this premise that the the money part hanging over someone's head brings people back to court as incentive for people to go back to court is false, right? That's right. There's literally no evidence that paying money bail makes somebody more likely to come back to court. And in fact, one of the things that the rise of community bail funds over the last decade has shown us is that when community bail funds post bail, people do come back at around the same rates. It's no different. And not only that, as Tracy said, judges get furious at community bail funds even when people come back. So I was in a courtroom in the Bronx more than 10 years ago, when Judge Ralph Fabrizio saw somebody walk into the courtroom in their own clothes, in street clothes, and became furious. He said, who posted bail for this man? And why was he so angry? This person hadn't been rearrested. He made his next court date. He was angry because he was free. He was angry because he knew that bail had been set and that this person did not have any money because that's what it said on the folder. That's what makes the system mad. So they start to show their true colors. The system actors don't actually care about this so-called skin in the game argument, but it becomes a justification for the use of money bail to keep people in cages pending disposition of the cases. And the system needs to do that because if everybody were free, if everybody were not in cages, then they would be more likely to be able to fight their cases. And the system couldn't withstand that. It needs the cages. It needs the pretrial detention. And so one of the things that's so powerful about community bail funds is that they're doing multiple things simultaneously, and they're doing it in the name of the community. They're materially helping people by getting them out of cages and back to their families and communities. But they are also making a pretty profound statement by coming in and collectively giving money to the court system in order to free somebody, saying, we are the community. We don't feel safer when somebody's in a cage in jail. We feel safer if somebody is outside, able to fight their case, able to go to work, able to take care of the kids, 
And we're going to continue to bail people out because of this larger belief in the injustice of what's happening inside this criminal courthouse and inside of this jail. And that is why the system doesn't like community bail funds. We are coming close to the end of our time. And so we're, we're not going to get to talk about people's budget or court watching or cop watching, but folks can pick up a copy of Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration and dig deep into those elements of these radical acts of justice. I do, Jocelyn, though, you you are an, a national expert on community bail funds. We saw three organizers with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund be arrested for providing mutual aid and getting people out of jail. What was your initial reaction? when you saw that happen? My initial reaction was a combination of horror and also a feeling like, of course, that's what they did. Because the Atlanta Solidarity Fund has for years been providing mutual aid, including the paying of money bail for people who are arrested for protesting and other forms of collective organizing. And the oppression of the movement to stop Cup City in Atlanta has been profound in multiple ways. People have died at the hands of police because of the oppression happening there. So it's no surprise that the system is using every tool at its disposal to try to uh, repress this social movement. But I study community bail funds around the country and the history of them, and it actually is very rare for the system to do what it's done in Atlanta, which is literally saying, the act of posting bail is money laundering. And we're going to prosecute you three organizers for the acts of acting as a bail fund. Not only that, when other people were arrested, the state, the prosecutors were saying that because people had the number of the bail fund written on their arms, that meant they were more likely to be guilty. In other words, just because people anticipated that they might need help, that meant that they were guilty. And now on top of it, there's been an additional prosecution of these three activists, as well as 61 people total on a RICO indictment brought by Attorney General Carr in Georgia. And here, the indictment is more than 100 pages long, and it describes what it, what it calls a criminal enterprise that is made up of people engaging in mutual aid and taking care of each other. So it names the buying of food supplies as acts in furtherance of a, con furtherance of a conspiracy. Buying glue, harm reduction supplies, these things are suddenly described as evidence of a crime. And so the state is really explicitly taking these collective acts of taking care of each other in the face of the system and in opposition to the system and saying, we can't allow that. And so we're going to declare those things to be crimes. It is scary. And it also shows the power of those collective acts. It also is not theoretical, uh, Jocelyn, because when I was at Rikers, one of the things that the other women kept saying to me was, sweetie, you're here. So you might as well say you did something. Get a plea so that you can hurry up and get out of Rikers to go to Bedford Hills. Because when you go to Bedford Hills, which is the prison, you get to walk around more. You get to cook for yourself. You get to wear makeup. You, you just have to say you're guilty so that you can get out of Rikers to this better place. And so keeping you caged absolutely does the thing that they want, which is to produce more bodies, to, to enslave us, 
to run those prisons so that those guards have good jobs because really all it is is an economic model and we are the consumers that they need to keep feeding that system for them. So it works. Powerful words to end on. You all have been listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We had two guests this morning. First, Jocelyn Simonson, a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and the leading national authority on community bail funds. Her work has been cited by the Supreme Court and discussed in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The Associated Press. And she has written for The New York Times, The Nation, The Washington Post, and others. Her book is Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. We have also been joined today by Tracy McCarter, a mom to four amazing humans, a grandmother to two, a nurse, a daughter, a friend, and a lifetime member of Girl Scouts USA. She recently completed her master's degree in nursing at Columbia University while simultaneously fighting for her freedom. She describes herself as a badass advocate who was no one's victim. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>